It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 47, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guests today are Don Zasada and Bridget Spann, owners and operators of Caretaker Farm in Western Massachusetts, where they raise vegetables for 275 CSA families. Caretaker Farm got its start in 1969 when Sam and Elizabeth Smith purchased the land. They started the CSA in 1991, and Don and Bridget came to the farm in 2004, eventually transferring ownership through a land trust and lease arrangement. We dig into that process, as well as discussing Caretaker Farm's relationship to its members, how Don and Bridget arranged things so that members do more than just picking up their vegetables, and how Don and Bridget have structured their own relationship to the farm and the apprentices to enhance the farm's sustainability, profitability, and quality of life. Don and Bridget provided a ton of value in this episode, from practical tips to some overarching philosophy, and we're going to get right to it after a quick word from our sponsors. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost. Founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Farmigo CSA management software, providing the tools you need to manage your CSA business. Farmigo CSA management software has a customizable management system to meet your farm's specific needs. CSAManagementSoftware.com. Don Zasada and Bridget Spann, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Chris. We're looking forward to talking with you. I'm so glad that you could make time to make this work today uh, here on the on the shortest day of the year when we're recording this one. I'd like to have you guys start off by just telling us a little bit about the about the farm in your own words. I've given a little bit of background in the intro, but it's it's always nice to hear from the folks who we're actually interviewing how your farm works and and uh, about the background and the history there. Sure. Um, so Caretaker Farm is uh, located in a in a valley in the far northwest corner of Massachusetts. Um, we can see both New York and Vermont from from the farm, so we're really in that corner. We have 34 acres that are situated in a long rectangle. About seven of those acres are in vegetables, cover crops, flowers, uh, berries, herbs, while the rest of the land includes meadows, forest, pasture. Um, we've got a couple ponds, there's some wetlands, and then there's a stream that bisects the farm. Uh, we don't own any of this land. Uh, we have a 99-year lease on all of the land, and that includes the land underneath all of the farm buildings and, and our home. Um, we have a mortgage on our home and the farm buildings uh, while we own all the animals and the farm equipment. We just finished up our 11th season at Caretaker Farm, and over that time, we've had um, a whole slew of animals from sheep. Uh, we had a milking cow for a number of years, beef cows, bees, uh, goats, milking goats, hens. Um, this coming year, we'll exclusively just have the bees, and those are taken care of by, uh, by some local beekeepers. And then we'll have some pigs and, and laying hens. And you know, we're primarily a vegetable operation. Uh, we have animals, and, and they're an important element to the whole farm organism, and, and we're constantly trying to tweak uh, that system so that it works for our mission and, and our members and, and our family. Uh, we market exclusively through CSA. To uh, This year, we'll have 275 families, and they come uh, every week from the start of June to the end of October, and then we stuff our root cellar, and they come every other week until our supplies run out. So we don't have a summer and a winter CSA. It's all part of, of one CSA. Um, we also supply food to a hot meals program for people in the community um, every week. Um, everyone has to come to the farm to pick up their produce. We don't deliver any shares whatsoever. Um, 
the mission of the farm is to put people into contact with the land that grows their produce. So um, we don't want people to just jump out of their cars and run in a distribution area, grab a box and, and get out of there. We want them to hang out all over this place. We want them to wander around. And there's a, a whole variety of ways in which we, we try to do that. Um, one way is that 20% of our crops are U-pick crops. So um, the other 80% are up in the distribution area. And we have a volume-based share system, which is absolute choice. So we, we just give them a canvas bag, which is about the size of a brown paper bag that they get at a grocery store and they fill it with whatever they want. And then in addition to that, they look at another chalkboard in the distribution area and that explains the available um, you pick crops and they head down to the fields to pick. So there's flags all over the farm because we want to get people everywhere. You know that we do have an area close to the distribution area, which has 20 different kinds of annual flowers and 13 kinds of perennial herbs, uh, six different kinds of um, mints to make teas. But, but then they have to go down into the fields to get snap peas and um, shelling peas, green beans, wax beans, edamame, uh, collards, kale, Brussels sprouts. They have to pick their own uh, husk cherries and tomatillos, uh, saladet tomatoes, cherry tomatoes. Um, every farm member picks between um, 40 and 60 pounds of plum tomatoes in one of our hoop houses. Um, and then there are the raspberries and the raspberries are located in a far field. So um, everyone wants raspberries, but in order to get those, they have to go out of our distribution area, go down a hill through the vegetable fields. They have to cross a bridge, pass a pond, walk over a larger bridge where the, the stream is located. Then they have to go through another meadow. And then eventually they're in that raspberry patch. Um, and it's, it's just a whole different world out there. And we're trying to get people away from the life that they had and challenges in the office or in their car. Um, and by the time they're out in that field, you know, looking at the green mountains of Vermont, they're just, they're in a different space. And that's the kind of experience that we're trying to support. So um, another way in which we try to integrate and people into I, the- Can I just say one thing about that? I remember Don in his life as a farmer in Boston, having a very clear philosophy of philosophy about the U-Pick and that it really should be as convenient as possible and close to parking because people are in a hurry. They're coming to the CSA after work. They need to get home for dinner or their next activity. And it was almost a courtesy thing to have it as convenient as possible near parking. And I remember for both of us coming from Boston out to Caretaker Farm and touring the farm with Elizabeth and Sam Smith, who are the founders of Caretaker Farm, and Elizabeth walking us way out to the raspberries and explaining to us in this delighted voice, see, isn't this wonderful? People, in order to get their raspberries, have to experience the whole farm. And I just remember having a little bit of this, wow, lady, are you crazy? Like, we're coming from Boston <laughs> and people are in a hurry and need to get their stuff done. And so I feel like it has been a little bit of an a process for us of moving into a small town and appreciating for many people that coming to the farm is an outing, not necessarily an errand. And certainly there are those weeks when it's all about an errand and they have too many things to do. But for many people that it is an outing and a time to relax and connect with the land and um, go about their you pick and connect with other people while they're doing some that. How many of your 275 families that are coming to pick up every week are are making that trek out to the raspberries? 
Yeah, people love raspberries, Chris. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> so, I'd, make, I'd take the walk. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's hard to say. We probably, I don't know, 175, 225, somewhere in there. We also have a setup, um, and we'll get into possibly some of the different roles that our farm members can play. But one one job that they can sign up for is to go and harvest for. Um, people that can't make it down into the fields. And, and those people that can't make it down in the fields, those aren't people that like just don't have time. These are um, some of our older adults or um, if they have just had surgery or they just physically can't make it down there, then we also, there Either are other farm members that go have and, a toddler. Yeah, there's, there's people that, that go down and pick for them. So those raspberries get... Um, oh get cleaned out pretty good. And, and we grow a lot of raspberries for those folks. This past season, um, the past two seasons, they've been able to you pick over 10 pints each share. So, um, you know, it's a significant amount of, 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 uh, of an incredible crop that they don't want to miss out on. I think the other part is that people come once a week during a distribution time to pick up the majority of their vegetables, but they are also welcome to come to the farm any day except Sunday during daylight hours to do their U-pick. So sometimes if people are to rush during that specific distribution day, they might come back another day during the week to do their U-pick. I'm looking on on Google Maps right now at, at where Williamstown, Massachusetts is located. And, and you guys aren't near, it doesn't look like a major city. Are you? We're not. Um, it's about an hour to get to Albany. Um, Williamstown itself has, I believe, 8,000 people in it. Uh, North Adams, which is about a half hour away, um, is larger than that. But we don't have a large um, metropolis that we're supplying food to. Um, the majority of, well, probably 60% of our farm members come from Williamstown itself. And um, there's a college, Williams College, which is in Williamstown, um, so it's it's a small New England college town, but 40% of our farm members come from just these neighboring neighboring hill towns um, to our farm to get their produce. Really interesting. So you guys aren't you're not drawing people over from Albany. We're not. We do have some farm members that come from um, as long as an hour and a half, hour and fifteen minutes away closer to the Pioneer Valley. They've just been farm members forever and, um, and they just love the farm. <laughs> and we encourage them actually, as we've been working on some other environmental sustainability initiatives on the farm, that um, we'd encourage them to check out CSAs that are closer to them. But um, yeah, they've, they've been coming back. Well, you have the raspberries. We have the raspberries. <laughs> exactly. Um, I also wanted to mention that every adult farm member is required to work at least two hours every season. And this helps with labor a bit, um, but it, it more allows members to get to know the farm and, and our farming systems. And we also have the option of, of having working share members where they put an additional 10 hours. Um, and so we, we're trying to, um, you know, we're trying to integrate people into this whole organism, um, not just give them the food. We also have seasonal celebrations. We have a rock the farm party in uh, April and that, and it's usually right around Earth Day. And, and that is simply to pick rocks out of our field. Um, we have a lot of families that come and enjoy that. You know, everyone can just run around the fields at that time of the year. And um, we're not worried about stepping on a lot of things and they help us get the rocks out of the field. We have a summer solstice potluck with an open mic 
It's a, uh, w- but it's without the mic. And so that's a, a really fun time. Uh, <laughs> we have a fall harvest dinner at a, a church in town. We usually get between 100 and 125 people there. That's a big potluck with a contra dance. Um, we just had our winter solstice ceremony, uh, which is my favorite thing that we do all year long. Um, so w- we also have various food workshops, canning, pickling, uh, different cooking workshops. We had a farm member this past year who provides Indian cooking workshops in town and she wanted to do her hours for the farm. She was interested in providing cooking workshops for our farm members. Um, so there's all kinds of ways in which we can integrate people into everything we're trying to do here. Um, there's also a bakery attached to our house and um, there's a baker who works three days a week. It's just a small homestead bakery. Um, we also have a mill and so she freshly mills organic wheat berries and makes seven different kinds of breads, cookies, scones, pies. Um, the most challenging thing about the bakery is it's it's located underneath our bedroom. And so it's uh, we get that smell in the morning and uh, it's uh, yeah, it's challenging not to just go downstairs and gobble away. You put put on a few extra pounds um, with the cars. There. <laughs> yeah, we've got. Yeah, we work it off, but we, it's nice to have the bakery. Um, we, we have uh, a photovoltaic system on our farm that we put in in 2008 um, that provides 100 percent of the electricity for our house and the farm. Um, we also have a composting toilet for the public's use. We put that in, uh, Bridget, you might remember, maybe in 2009. Up until that point, these 275 families would come into our house to go to the bathroom. So that was uh, uh, an aspect of family farm sustainability that, that was pretty important. Um, some other things about our farm is that we, we don't spray anything on the land, even if it's allowable under organic standards. No pesticides, no herbicides no insecticides, no fertilizers. We just use compost for our fertility. And so no, you're not, you're not using any supplemental rock minerals or anything like that for, for soil balancing, Uh, just, just straight what you produce on the farm. Um, Straight. Well, we have been producing our own compost with um, inputs from the farm. And then also we invite farm members to bring their leaves and their food scraps um, up until a couple of years ago, we were also receiving food scraps from Williams College that we turned into that mix. Um, this past year, we just bought some compost from uh, um, a compost um, company. And so we're going to test that out and see how that works within our system because we're not receiving the the raw material from comp from Williams College right now where we, we could use a little bit more compost. So, but okay. that's exclusively how we... Um, uh, how we, uh, um, affect the, uh, the fertility of our soil. Um, an- another large part of the farm obviously is labor and, um, our primary source of labor is through our apprenticeship program. We hire three to four apprentices every year that are with us from the start of April through the end of October. We also have a volunteer program that starts near the end of April and goes to the early October. And we have about one group a week come and they, we have a, a structured two hour experience. Um, and we want, work with all different kinds of groups from preschool groups. We have a lot of college groups that come out, um, high school groups, there's other adult groups. Um, and in, another important part of our labor are these farm members that we have over 500 adults. Each of them are putting in two hours and they have you know, such a myriad of, of skills. We have uh, 
that, yeah, they're involved in all different aspects of the farm. We, and we barter a few shares also for really specialized jobs. There's a jet engine repairman who takes care of all of our tractors and, and he is, um, he's on it, you know, <laughs> he, uh, he's extremely ex- careful, um, with his work and, you know, I just don't have to worry about taking care of the tractors. And, and then finally, um, our family helps out on the farm. We have a daughter who's 12, Gabriella, and she loves to help in the distribution area and, and with some field tasks. Our son, Micah, is nine years old, and he he's just crazy about field work. He has been since he could walk. Um, he helps us on all kinds of projects in the field and also in the wash station. Um, and Bridget, do you want to explain our roles? Sure. I think it's helpful for people to know that I would not describe us as co-farming in the way that we know some other couples where they are definitely both farmers. And as far as apprentices go, it's helpful for them to view Don as their boss, the person to whom they would direct any work-related or farm-related agriculture questions. And then I am involved as far as managing sort of the behind the scenes stuff, consulting with Don, making major decisions about the farm. I plan farm events for our CSA members um, and also workshops for farm members. And I'm involved with the apprentices as far as their life here at the farm not directly related to their farm work. So whether it's something's needed in the apprentice kitchen or we need more supplies of something in their um, hangout room in the barn or the washing machine is broken, things that have to do with their life besides farming, I'm involved in. And Don writes the newsletter and I'm the one who edits the newsletter. Got it. And I should say, even though we're a small family farm, we're very bureaucratic when it comes to Don's <laughs> department and my department. And I think we're really clear when, whether it's CSA members or apprentices are asking us questions to try to be very clear. Actually, that's something that we need to ask Don or we need to ask Bridget just to try and avoid this. Well, Don said this and Bridget said that and, you know, trying to be uh, consistent in our answers. It's kind of like parenting sometimes, right? I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't have people, you can't have play that game of telegraph with your kids. You know, you got to be really clear. Yes. I think something that's really interesting in caretaker farm, when you look at the information about your farm from, from the outside, it's clear that there are a lot of, and, and just listening to you talk about it, um, there's, it's clear that there's a lot of intention going on, that, that it's a, it's a very designed system. It's not something that was just that was thrown together and kind of taking little bits and pieces and 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 pasting them on that it is, you know, even when you talk about something like the raspberries being located in such a way that you have to walk through the entire farm, but everything about it that you've described seems like it it has a lot of intention. I think it'd be really interesting to talk some about the history of the farm because and you mentioned this in 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 your intro there is you guys didn't start the farm. So Caretaker Farm started in 1969, Sam and Elizabeth Smith, who had a background. um, Sam's background was more involved in banking and Elizabeth's background was in art. Um, They both studied at Yale and their background was not in agriculture. They had done some um, gardening, you know, enthusiastic gardeners. um, And they were part of the back to the land movement there in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, unbelievable people. If, if you ever have the, uh, the joy to meet them, um, 
and extremely community minded. And, you know, they got into this um, again, not from a farming background, but from more of a, a philosophy of being connected to the land and being connected to their community, um, living simply. So they, and they had also said when they first moved here that they moved here because they had a small garden on School Street in the center of Williamstown. And then they moved to Caretaker Farm because they wanted to have a bigger garden. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And so they began to dig up some garden beds. You know, this is old school. Um, you know, there weren't a lot of conferences to go to. There weren't a lot of, uh, you know, there wasn't an internet. to. They, this was all trying to figure it out. Um, reading some books and trying to figure it out. And so they they built some garden beds. They had more food than they could use themselves. So they started to give it away. Then they had more food than they, they felt like they should start um, selling this stuff. So they built a farm stand. And at that point too, in the mid seventies, they began to to hire apprentices to help them with the work on the farm. Um, and they were able to acquire a couple cabins that the apprentices stayed in um, down by the river. And the um, idea of transforming the farm into a CSA happened in 1991. Um, Indian Line Farm, uh, which was the first CSA in the U.S., started just in the south part of Berkshire County, where we, where we are. And um, again, that was 1987. And, and Sam and Elizabeth had heard about it and thought it would be wonderful to, to try to do that up here at, at Caretaker Farm. And so they started in 1991 with 50 farm members. Um, and that has grown to when we took over the farm in 2004, there were 235 families. And so we've grown that uh, just a little bit to 275 at this point. That's such an interesting background um, to think that they were on the land 22 years before they before they shifted over to that CSA marketing model. Where did you guys come into the picture then? Bridget and I met as we were uh, we were volunteers down in rural Chile. Um, we were down there for two years involved in community organizing. Um, I was working with kids and the elderly. Bridget was working with uh, women. And when we came back to the U.S., um, I was uh, just trying to figure out, you know, an absolute culture shock and trying to figure out a way in which you can best um, respond to what you learned through that intense experience. Um, and then also looking at what are some needs that could utilize skills that I might have. And so I lucked into um, an apprenticeship at Brookfield Farm with Dan Kaplan. Um, and I was there for two years. And then I was hired as the agriculture director at the Food Project, which is a youth development program um, just outside of Boston. They bring youth from urban and suburban backgrounds together and use agriculture as the medium to, uh, to get at different issues in their life and talk about um, food security and diversity issues, um, food justice. And anyway, after being there for seven years, um, we had our first child and we were looking into different options. We, we aren't city people, um, even though I loved my work there. Um, it was wonderful, important work. Uh, it, was, it would be impossible to integrate my family into it. I was, um, and so we were looking into possibilities. And so we um, we're part of the FarmLink programs in some of the different northeastern states, um, and those programs. And I'm I'm 
not sure how they're currently set up, but at the time they helped link people that had land with um, people that were looking for land. And those provided some interesting options for us um, because of the amount of money we had or the rather the money we didn't have, it, it limited our options. Um, so we ended up uh, looking more um, up in Maine, kind of rural Maine. Um, as the closer you would get to the markets, the more expensive though that land was. It was very difficult to find land in, in Massachusetts, um, Connecticut, Rhode Island. You know, those were the options and the options were more of, you know, a 200, $250,000 for 30 acres and a rundown house was kind of the options that we were looking at. And, and we were um, trying to figure out a way to make that happen. And then in that process, we heard about um, this farm. We, I knew a lot about caretaker farm because I was, when I was an apprentice, I had visited the farm a couple times as part of the, the craft apprentice training network. And so I, I knew the farm um, from that. And when I heard that it was a, a possibility, um, it, uh, it, it seemed like it, it would be an incredible option that would allow us to farm relatively close to our families. My family is in central New York, Bridget's family is in New Jersey. And hopefully we could do it at a cost that would be affordable to us. So you went and... How did you strike up the relationship with uh, with Sam and Elizabeth? So they simply put a um, a notice in the Natural Farmer, which is a quarterly publication from uh, the NOFA Northeast Organic Farmers Association, and we saw that Bridget was very excited about it. I wasn't as excited about it just because I had my head in I don't know what. Um, it was in the middle of a farming season. I think it was June, and. Uh, and we just responded with our resume and a cover letter, and they invited us to come out on Father's Day, um, 2004. And so we came out for an initial visit, walked around the farm, and then they narrowed their search down. I don't know how many people applied, but they had narrowed their search down to three couples. And then they wanted to go visit the current farm that those couples were managing. So they came out to Boston, visited the land at the food project um, and interviewed us there. And shortly after that, they invited us to be the next um, farmers at Caretaker Farm. And then we had to go through a process for ourselves and meeting with um, an accountant, um, a lender to see if this could work for us. So how did that land transfer actually take place? Was the farm already part of the equity trust program or is that something that, that took place as you guys were doing the transition? Caretaker Farm had a long history with equity trust and they had also consulted with the Southern Berkshires land trust that is um, part of Indian line, uh, the organization that helped Indian Line Farm develop its lease. And at the point that we came in, they were sort of at this, you know, which comes first, recruiting the new farmer or developing the new lease? And how do you recruit the new farmer without having the new lease? But how do you really develop the new lease and finalize its terms without the new farmer present? So when we moved to Caretaker Farm, it was a little bit with a leap of faith that the details would get worked out. And so we 
Equity Trust was providing the technical consultation on developing the lease. Sam and Elizabeth had already worked with the local land trust, Williamstown Rural Lands Foundation, and they had already sold the development rights to the state. So there was already an APR on the farmland, but even with the APR alone, this isn't enough in Massachusetts and in many places for the land to then be affordable to a farmer. And an, and an APR is? An agricultural preservation restriction, which is basically the program in Massachusetts by which the development rights to the land are sold. So had that not happened, Caretaker Farm could have been developed, I believe it was into six building lots. And so once they put the APR in place, then that would no longer be possible. And that takes away some of the value of the farm, which lowers the which lowers the market value of it. Exactly. Yes. So when we moved here at the end of 2004 for all of 2005, while Don was the employee of Sam and Elizabeth and sort of serving as assistant farm manager on the farm, we were working with Equity Trust and with Williamstown Rural Lands Foundation to develop the lease, to figure out the financing of this deal, and to also work with local farm members to develop a campaign for Caretaker Farm because there was going to, a fundraising campaign was going to be needed to bridge the difference between what Sam and Elizabeth could have gotten for the farm on the open market and what they would get for the farm once all these restrictions had been in place. And these restrictions, which are many, serve to benefit the local community in all sorts of ways, but they also bring the value of the farmland down. Right. Or at least the monetary value of the farmland. Yes, exactly. The monetary value. And, and, and of course, getting that well, like a lot of farmers, I imagine that that for Sam and Elizabeth, the equity that they'd built up since 1969 was was mostly wrapped up in the land. I mean, that was their retirement fund. Yes. And in places like Berkshire County, where the price of land had just skyrocketed, um, it, it is a dilemma that a lot of farmers are faced with when they own all of the land and that they both want to retire and, but they also want to see the farm remain a farm. And so many people faced with that heartbreaking decision of how do we provide for our retirement and, and not develop the farm. As far as the actual process after that year of working on the lease, we finally had a lease in place that we agreed with, that Sam and Elizabeth agreed with that Williamstown Rural Lands agreed with, and it's based on a model lease that Equity Trust has developed, which is available on Equity Trust's website. They have a lot of documents and some publications about preserving farmland. Um, and this, the closing was quite overwhelming. There were about 16 people around the table and four or five attorneys. And in addition, our then two-year-old daughter, because all of our childcare options suddenly fell through for that day. Um, <laughs> and so, In that process, Sam and Elizabeth sold the whole entire farm to Equity Trust. And I should say on at Caretaker Farm, there are two houses, the main farmhouse that we live in now and a secondary house where Sam and Elizabeth currently live. So they sold the whole package of the farm to Equity Trust. Equity Trust then put the lease agreements in place for the land and sold the land to Williamstown Rural Lands Foundation, and then sold the one house back to Sam and Elizabeth, 
and the main farmhouse and all the farm buildings back to Don and me with a lease for the land under the farm buildings. Interesting. And that must be a very long-term lease. Yes. So that's the 99-year lease that Don was referring to. So for us as the new farmers in the arrangement, this was a very attractive arrangement because we could never afford to be farming in Berkshire County if it weren't for a project like this to make the farm affordable to farmers. And for us, We have long-term tenure on the land, which is incredibly important. We have a home to live in and um, we have the community support. The community is very invested on a community level. They both contributed to the campaign to preserve the farm. And there are all sorts of restrictions in place that guarantee that sustainable farming practices will be used on this farm. And then however many years from now, when it's our turn to retire from farming and sell the farm. We won't be faced with that heartbreaking decision. How do we retire and preserve the farm? That work has already been done. And so for us, when that time comes, we have to sell the farm to someone who's a qualified person prepared to actively farm the land and for a certain approved purchase price as provided for in our lease. So it's something that is wonderful. It was a lot of work to put this project together. And I think this first transition, I believe, is the most challenging. And from then on, there's sort of a process set forth in the lease to provide for future transitions. So I'm curious if your future transition is is designed to be capped at a certain price, how do you guys build equity? I mean, what's what's going to be your retirement strategy when you get there? Excellent question. (laughs) So for us, when it is our turn to sell the farm, we can sell it for the as restricted agricultural value of the farm and or what we paid plus inflation. So for us, as we look at improvements that we're making to the farm and wanting to maintain things, we're thinking very carefully about what also are improvements that we will make that will add to the agricultural value of the farm. And then for us, we just have to be um, saving money in other ways to prepare for a retirement, but not imagining that it will be cashing in at the farm someday to provide for our retirement. Yeah, I mean, essentially, we have to save. <clears throat> excuse me, we have to save um, enough money for from the farm's profit every season to go into our a retirement fund. Do you guys work with a core group on the farm, like a lot of a lot of the CSAs in your area do, to to set share prices and to arrange a budget so that you've got the the income that you need to be able to put aside money for retirement? We don't. Um, Sam and Elizabeth, when they started the the CSA, did have a core group, and um, you know, the the story that they tell is that over time, as different systems um, were developed, not only farming systems and and kind of uh, member integration systems, um, but also the financial systems were developed. Um, they didn't have a lot to talk about anymore um, at the core group meetings. And so slowly they were disbanded. And so that happened even before our transition. So I do all the bookkeeping. Um, I meet with an accountant and through that process, hopefully we have enough money to put aside for our, for our retirement. I'm also thinking about that core group and how many of those people then went on to serve on the campaign for caretaker mm. farm fundraising committee 
And an interesting part about being at Caretaker Farm, we've been here since the end of 2004, and there are so many farm members who have a much longer history with Caretaker Farm than we do. So while we don't have a formal core group, I feel like we have a lot of people who sort of have the farm memory of Mm. events and practices and people who have been near and dear to the farm. And I feel like I'm definitely hearing new farms, hearing new stories, and just getting input from people about their history with the farm. Well, it must be an interesting arrangement for you guys to have Sam and Elizabeth still there on the farm and to have these members who have this this much longer history with the place than you do. Yeah. You know, we didn't know how this was going to play itself out. You know, I don't think there were many, many family or, or friends that while we're in the middle of this process, um, were really encouraging us to keep going through with it. It was incredibly challenging in many different ways. And, and the fact that we don't own any land and um, the former owners are going to be living nearby and, and um, how involved were they going to be, all of these um, good questions. And we knew we weren't going to know um, really um, how this thing was going to shake out for many years. And we've just been absolutely um, blown away with the support that members have had for this transition and especially Sam and Elizabeth, you know, they, they created this place. Um, the amount of time that went into building the community, um, the meetings they had to, to bring people to the farm to share about what CSA was when no one had any idea. It was just incredible. So to, to gently hand this baby over to us, um, in a way in which they've, it's just been very, very striking. And they've been nothing but supportive since we've um, taken over the management. You know, they aren't, they've never ever walked out in the fields and this is what I think you should, you know, there's never any any part of that. Um, they have not been involved at all in the day-to-day operations of the farm. They're currently, well, they've always been farm members, um, but that's their role now. And whenever we need support, they are always there for, for conversation and, and for input. Um, for instance, right now when we're doing our this talk with you, our kids walked across the driveway and they're hanging out with Sam and Elizabeth so we can have some quiet <laughs> in our house. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're very special people to the organic agriculture movement to this farm, but, but also to us. I think also a really important detail in this process is that before we came to Caretaker Farm, we had been actively looking for land and farming opportunities for the past year in a very open way. So Don had already told his employer at the Food Project, he had given them over a year's notice, and they knew that we were pursuing this dream. And so we had talked to other land trusts, to other farmers, to landowners, to all sorts of people, and really came in with a sense of the opportunities out there. And each sort of has its costs and its benefits. And then on Sam and Elizabeth's end, that we were not the first couple that they had talked to about taking over Caretaker Farm. So before we moved here, there was another former apprentice who had lived here for two years. And over time the deal that they were trying to craft with him broke down. And I think it was an incredibly painful process. I also think a lot was learned through that process. So I think on both sides, when we were going through all the negotiations for as challenging as it was, there was a lot of overarching, we really want this to happen. And um, 
I, I just say that because a lot of people are so daunted about how you make farm transfers work. And um, it, it's a part of the story. I think an important aspect of those that time of negotiation is that we decided with Sam and Elizabeth to hire a facilitator who met with us once a month through that year-long process of trying to craft this lease together. And, you know, one thing we didn't want to have happen is that at the end of this process of trying to put this lease together is to have a challenging relationship with this family that lives right across our driveway. You know, there, we needed to move through this process um, with support and in a way in which um, we all felt comfortable and the facilitator helped us with that. I think it's hugely important. I mean, when I, when you look at what happens with a lot of traditional farm transfer arrangements, um, you know, from especially intergenerational, you know, things where, where the parents are passing something on to the kids, those kinds of, those kinds of negotiations and, and the process of what happens afterwards is a lot of times a, a source of a lot of pain for farm families. So I think it's really important that you guys put that, that kind of effort and that, that intentionality into it. The other thing I want to say about Sam and Elizabeth being incredibly supportive in a very exciting way, they are now at this stage of doing all these amazing things in life that they didn't do for so many years while they were so busy farming. So Elizabeth has been pursuing her art. Sam has been biking. They have been visiting family. They have a daughter with a farm in Colorado and they've gone and visited there and helped out. And so for me, it's very exciting about vibrant people who are doing really interesting things in their seventies and yeah, into their eighties. I'd like to stop for a moment here, get a word from our sponsors and then come back and talk about the apprenticeship program at Caretaker Farm. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost. Carl Hammer, the founder and the owner of the company, likes to describe potting soil as a set of promises, a promise that it has the nutrients the plant needs, that it has the microbes the plant needs to help forage those nutrients, and that it's free of weed seeds. I used Vermont Compost Fort V as a blocking mix and potting soil for over 12 years on my farm, and we grew some great transplants with it year after year in soil blocks and in traditional cell flats. We even grew rosemary plants in pots for multiple years, a real testament to the structure of the soil, which can keep the microbes alive over an extended period of time and provide good aeration for the roots on an ongoing basis. When you put plants in containers, whether it's a five-year-old rosemary in a 20-gallon nursery can or a 24-day-old lettuce seedling in a 10-20 cell tray, you need an optimized matrix of materials that can produce a healthy plant within a restricted media volume. Vermont Compost Potting Soils provide just that consistently year after year. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Farmigo CSA Management Software, providing the tools you need to manage your CSA business. Farmigo CSA Management Software is designed from the ground up to manage the CSA you operate from customer sign-up right through delivery. Farmigo staff will work with you to customize the dashboard for your farm based on the way your CSA works. System setup is free, and the system can be configured for a wide variety of CSA models, from the traditional box plan right through fully modifiable boxes. On the customer side, Farmigo offers a portal for members to sign up, make payments, and access their account to manage vacation holds and site changes, all with the control by the farm over what can be changed and when the changes can be made. On the farmer side, you can send fully customizable confirmation emails and auto responses and generate reports to help you manage everything from harvest and loading the truck right through delivering the CSA shares. And they offer amazing customer support to you at no charge. They'll even call you if you need help. 
Learn more at csamanagementsoftware.com. All right. And we're back with Don and Bridget from Caretaker Farm. Um, you guys talked about the apprenticeship program. And actually, it was one of your apprentices, Dan Rays, who contacted me and said, you got you got to have these guys on the show. They're amazing. And um, and so I'd, I'd like to dig into how that apprenticeship program works at your place, because I think it's it seems very different than a lot of these apprentice and internship type arrangements, which I don't know, I oftentimes see as just being a source of cheap labor. Um, and it seems like you guys have a lot more than just a source of cheap labor with these, these people. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I just wanted also this past week, I was at a conference, um, fantastic conference, the new England vegetable and berry conference. And, um, it's amazing how many sessions I went to where, you know, everyone's talking about, um, this piece of equipment, this past, um, and it's very, very comfortable conversation. And then once a question comes up or once the idea of labor comes up, um, there's this big kind of like, uh, labor, you know, it, it's just, it's the area that isn't fun to talk about. And it's kind of, it's a lot of fun to go into the trade show and look at all these different, um, things that we can buy that can, in, um, improve our farm. And yet I, I really do feel that, um, you know, labor is, is, it's the heart of it for us. And it's something that we constantly are keep trying to tweak and improve, um, and so regarding our apprenticeship program, um, we find that expectations are absolutely crucial from the beginning. And that includes any farm descriptions that are on websites or um, um, any publications that are out there that relate to our farm. We try to be very clear from the outset. And so we start screening the applicants pretty heavily um, when we receive their cover letters and resumes. Um, the questions in our head it's always, are they going to be a good fit for our farm? And is the farm going to be a, a good fit for them? We receive um, a, between 70 and 80 applicants a year. We Out of that, we invite eight to 12 or so. And then we hire three good fits. And if we only have two good fits, we'll just hire two. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then we aim to find uh, a good college student for the summer if we only hire two. Um, we're not going to stretch and hire someone just to fill a space. It just not, it just doesn't work. And it's, it's incredibly tempting, um, this time of year, if we have some openings to just hire, um, but we need to find those fits. And so during the visit, we take a farm tour, we do a little work. Um, I'm trying to figure out, can they work and talk at the same time? Um, how is our, communication and um, how do they, how can they use their, how do they use their bodies? Um, and then we sit down with Bridget and we go over a whole long apprentice visit checklist that we've developed. Um, the majority of things that we discuss are things that are on our website or maybe I even mentioned that during our field walk. Um, but we found that it's incredibly important to be just absolutely clear about our expectations. Um, it seems like challenges that we've had in the past um, are mainly due with us thinking that the apprentices should be doing something and, and on the other side, them having no idea that we had that expectation. Like what? I'd be, I'd be interested in an example there. Um, so the apprentices used to share our kitchen. You know, they would have three meals, a day, four meals a day um, in our kitchen, if you include their snack. Um, 
And so if we weren't extremely clear about how it needs, how the kitchen needs to be cleaned, what time of day they need to be out of our kitchen, um, um, the volume on the the radio, um, how all kinds of, yeah. So all of those types of things that the first time we go through them, you just figure that, oh, well, you know, people know how to clean up a kitchen or, you know, probably at the end of a hard working day, if it's nine o'clock, People are going to want to go into their cabins, but, you know, that just isn't necessarily the case. And so we just try to spell out things very specifically. I think also for us, when we are really clear about our expectations ahead of time, then in the moment during the season, we feel much better about calling people back to those expectations because we feel like we've already reviewed it once and we're calling back to something as opposed to introducing something for the first time. And, and I'm thinking about how we have been reminded during the season when an expectation isn't clear. And I'm thinking of the instance, Don, when there was the issue of people needing to close the chickens in at night. We try to be so clear with the apprentices about both our work expectations and what we're able to offer and then what they need to bring to the situation. And there was a few seasons ago where there was an issue where we realized it was our expectation that the apprentices uh, close in the chickens at night before they went to bed. And it's something where it can be challenging because all of us get up very early and sometimes we're ready to go to bed before the chickens are ready to be shut in and go to bed. And so I think it was something that people were starting to grumble about and feel like that wasn't as explicitly spelled out that that was part of their responsibility when it was their week to be the animal person. And I know one of the things that we did from that is the next year on our checklist, it showed up very clearly. The animal person, when it's your week to be on animals, one of your jobs is to close the chickens in before you go to bed at night. So for us, it's a learning curve each year about the things we tweak, the things we add, the things we remember we've got to say, and then it feels fine from then on that we're going to call people back to. Actually, if you look at this checklist, this is something that is part of what we were talking about from the beginning. I really like that phrase, calling people back to the expectations. That's that's real. It's a really nice turn because I mean that's really if if you've been if you've been clear about your expectations and and really clear so that people could could understand them up front so that they were they they fully addressed all of the things needed to be addressed. It really is just a matter of saying, hey, remember, mm -hmm. this is what we talked about, which is so much different than being like, you know, oh, you guys are, you know, you guys are lazy or you guys are not doing your job or, or you're, you know, we need this other thing to happen. Or I'm so sick of seeing you out there with your iPhone plugged into your head, yep. you know, that, that it's all putting that up front. I say the iPhone plugged into your head because you guys address the, the iDevices on your, uh, on your, apprenticeship page. And that's something that also was part of our learning curve of all of a sudden when you're having a very tech savvy apprentice who was very excited to have a lot of technology even at the breakfast table. And so for us, it, it, it's a process of negotiating each year and then working towards the next year. All right, we're going to be even clearer about this detail. Dude, you guys are so ready to have teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> we're all, we're on the cusp, <laughs> but you know, Chris, I just wanted to, um, you know, hit some of these, um, areas of expectation because they could be helpful for, um, 
for folks. You know, we we are very specific about our farm schedule with people, um, and we're clear with them. Also, you know, we start at six thirty in the morning and end at six at night. We don't start at um, six twenty five. We don't start at six thirty three. Um, if someone's going to be on our farm, they have to be very comfortable with being prompt. You know, we have, we're, we're rolling stuff out in the morning and we can't have people show up late, but the same is true at the end of the day, we are going to end at six. We, this isn't the kind of farm where, you know, someone, uh, you know, yells across a, a bed that we're hoeing, you know, down at six twenty-five isn't a time we stop, you know, I have a whole nother life after six o'clock that I want to get into. Um, so we started one time and we were, we're also pretty diligent about stopping at the same time. So we go over hours of work. We have a chore rotation. We're trying to constantly give apprentices areas of the farm in which they can have ownership over. And so one area is the greenhouse, another area is the animals, another area is running our entire distribution. And so they rotate through each of those every week. Um, we do goal setting the fourth week of the apprenticeship. The first day, everyone would say the same thing. They, everyone wants to learn how to farm. Um, and it's hard to um, check in with people to see if they know how to farm. You know, someone could ask me that on, on a given day. And after 20 years, I have no idea how to farm. So <laughs> we, we wait for the fourth week. So people have a feel for what, um, what the different systems on the farm. And then they um, share with me two to five areas where they really want to sink their teeth in. Um, we have feedback sessions once a month. Um, and these are, Bridget does a feedback session regarding kind of community living. And then I do a feedback with them regarding how, they're doing with their work in the field. And I, I feel like it's a primary responsibility to them as a mentor that I let them know what they're doing well and what are areas of improvement so that they can run their own farm. And apprentices constantly want feedback. I know I, I always wanted even more feedback when I was an apprentice. Um, and so we have a process for doing that, which is adapted from the organization I used to work with and I keep tweaking it. Um, but sometimes it's me giving feedback to everyone together. Sometimes it's me giving feedback to an individual apprentice. Um, and sometimes it's them giving feedback to one another and them giving feedback to me. And so we do that once a month. Um, people can bring up things at any time, but as you know, things just get moving. And so this is a time once a month when we're we're not on the farm land itself or off of the farm and, and we uh, can really dig in. So it's a, it's a, a dedicated time really for sitting down and doing a review of things. It's, um, it's a review of things. And it's also, um, you know, in many ways predicated on taking or creating a safe space and, um, and allowing and, and giving apprentices real feedback on what they're doing well, and here are areas of improvement. Um, and that's an ongoing dialogue that we can keep coming back to through in, in other months when we have different types of meetings. Um, I think also it's a regularly scheduled feedback 
that session that people know is coming as opposed to those other moments where you don't have anything like that set up and you're like, oh, usually it's that anxiety when you're like, I have to check in with someone about how they're working on the farm because we need to work on this or that or the next thing. And a lot of times we can delay some of those challenging conversations, whereas for us, we have it set up on a monthly basis. And so both we know that we have to prepare for it and apprentices know that it's part of the process of their education here and learning how to be a farmer. And I assume that doesn't mean that all of the feedback waits until one of those meetings. You, you've got to be, you know, if somebody's making a mistake along the way or could be doing a better job of, of bunching the carrots, you're going to show them how to do a better job of bunching the carrots. It's not like you save that kind of stuff. Up. Exactly. Exactly. And yet, um, you know, we have, it's a long season, you know, here, they're here for seven months. Um, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's very physically taxing and people are working together, living together, eating together. Um, things come up and, you know, we don't want to let that balloon fill bigger and bigger and bigger with conflict. And then, you know, it gets popped at some weird point um, around something that really has nothing to do with the problem. And then it's really difficult for everyone to work. And so we're trying to proactively assume and know that conflict is going to arise and try to um, deal with it in a, in a safe environment so we can talk about what are, what are some of the real issues um, and how can we move forward in a way in which we'll enhance our crew and how we work together and what we're trying to do here. So, Don, I mean, you know, I know that, that issues that you can have on the farm, I mean, you know, it's one thing to correct a, you know, a mistake that somebody's making, but it is really hard to make time to correct things like, say, how fast somebody's going. I mean, is there, how, how would you address that with somebody on your farm? Yeah. So that's a great point, Chris. So it's a busy harvest morning and people are scattered around, out around different fields and, um, and I'm focusing on what I'm doing, but I'm also keeping an eye on how everyone else is moving. And um, I can see certain things that are going on and I might not mention, I, I don't have time to mention it in the moment, but when we have our feedback session, you know, some of the things that I might say to someone have to do with, you know, I noticed that when you were harvesting the carrots, you move very fast and I can see you're moving your body very well. You seem to be very efficiently moving through all of those root vegetables, through the radishes and through the beets. And yet for some reason, when you get to the greens, you kneel and you slow down and you carefully pick up every lettuce and place it in the, in the crate. And it's the kind of job which we've gone over a few times. And um, the expectation is that you stay up, lean over, cut them quick, get them in the crate and move on. And so I'm happy to work alongside you the next time we harvest, because I think that although you're working very fast in some areas, there are still other areas of the harvest where I feel like you can improve. And is that a the, the technique you just used there is is I think what what they used to call in my sister's grade school was was uh, a compliment sandwich. You know, you're, <laughs> it, it, I mean, is is that something that that you always um that you always try to follow in those sessions? Or I mean, sometimes are you just having to sit down and say, "Dude, I need you to work faster." Um. No, I I, I never go with the dude. I always. <laughs> um, the, we're trying to create an environment in which people can hear me also. 
And so I have found, and I've done these um, feedback sessions, you know, over a hundred of them over the years. And um, what we're trying to do is allow people to hear one another. And so I found that it's very difficult to hear someone when they're just specifically coming at you with suggestions on how you can do something better. Um, I want them to address me also and let me know what I'm doing well and areas that I can improve on to enhance my ability to be a better mentor to them. But I'm never going to simply say, dude, you're, you're slow. You got to get faster. I might see, you know, there's that spectrum of oftentimes that spectrum of attention to detail versus speed. And I will refer to that, that, you know, with that specific crop, the attention to detail is not as important. We need to go faster. You know, I definitely address other folks. You're going way too fast with those cucurbits. We need to slow down and transplant them a lot slower. I think the other part of the feedback is looking at the challenges of being a production farm and everyone wanting to be able to finish this job and finish work on time. And also the feedback to people, if you hope to run your own farm one day, this is the speed at which you are going to have to work. And that is sort of part of the apprentice education about you will always, like when we first, uh, purchase the farm, a friend congratulated us and she said, congratulations, you'll now have more work than you can ever get done in your lifetime. (laughs) And so (laughs) I feel like for us, it's that, you know, we hear that you want to learn how to farm and we hear that you want to run, possibly run your own farm someday. And here are some of the skills and speed and things that you would need to do in order to make that happen. So it's both about our farm right now and the work we need done. And also this is how you would need to work to run your own farm someday. Are these monthly meetings something, Bridget, that you're also participating in with these these other non-production issues? So I have a separate check-in with the crew and people have morning meeting each morning with Don. And that is a point at which they could bring up all sorts of things. And sometimes the morning meeting is five minutes. Sometimes the morning meeting is 25 minutes, depends on the day and what is going on. So separate from the check-ins that Don does, I meet with people to talk about their communal life here on the farm that doesn't have to do with agriculture. So I'm specifically asking how things are going with the apprentice kitchen, how things are with their cabins, um, the use of the bathroom, shower time, laundry, and we have a room in the barn that is um, has a pellet stove, high-speed internet, and it's sort of their hangout space. And there are areas of the farm that we want to make sure are comfortable and available to all different people. We have one hour a week of work time that we dedicate to cleaning jobs on the farm. And that involves the apprentice kitchen, apprentice bathroom, the hangout room in the barn. And so some of my check-ins are both about are those spaces feeling clean, accessible, pleasant, you know, are there other things that you need in order to make that happen? And I found it's a really great space. You know, yes, it is true. At any point, this apprentice could say to that apprentice, you know, um, (laughs) those stinky exercise shirts that you you have in the, in the barn area um, really are bothering me. Can you store them someplace else, for example? And they could say that to the person at any point, but we're 
when we're in a design space to check in with one another about how things are going, I find that those things are more likely to happen. So I'm both asking some questions of people and then also making sure, is, are there other things that you want to make sure to bring up or that we have a chance to discuss? And Chris, I just want to also say that, you know, our, our check-in sessions aren't um, kind of off the cuff um, conversations, you know, particularly when apprentices have to give one another feedback and they have to give me feedback. Um, there's um, a lot of framing that's done around that whole experience. You know, a week before we're going to have that, I explain the whole process to everyone. I give people an hour of work time to write two to four examples of positives and two to four examples of areas of improvement for every other person. Um, and then the the actual day itself, um, you know, it's a very it's a very structured time in which um, for three minutes I would give you feedback. In a, this is a monologue; it's not a dialogue. I'm giving you feedback for three minutes. Then I yell switch, and then everyone changes, and then you would give me feedback for three minutes, and then. I yell, switch partners, and I've already set up who's going to be meeting with who next. They go to the next person and so on and so forth. It's, this isn't meant to be a dialogue. It's simply um, me sharing. You You need to – this forces you to listen to what I have to say. And so it's a very powerful experience for people that normally don't have as strong of a voice in a crew. Um, and it's an, it's an intense experience for a lot of people who have never – had to give feedback to one another. Um, and it's unfortunately, it's also hits people in, in a very profound way because they're not used to hearing other people say good things about them. Um, and then once we're done with meeting with one another, then I, I bring closure to it. We get together and I ask people to go around and share about the experience itself, but then also say vocally to every the whole group what's one thing that someone said that you're doing well and what's one area that you're excited about working on and uh, you know i this isn't the kind of thing also that once we're done we go out to the field and someone yells to the other person hey i know you said this to me i want to what do you mean by that you know it's it's kind of like the sacred space in which if you want to talk to me about my feedback that i gave to you ask me and then with my permission, then we'll, you know, go 20 feet from where everyone else is weeding or hoeing. And we talk about that. So there's a lot of structure around this whole process. I think that we put a lot of structure around it because done poorly, I think it can create more problems than it would um, help to alleviate. And so it's, uh, yeah, it's very, and it's based on, um, a book called Growing Together by a friend named Greg Gale. And he wrote this when he was at the Food Project. Um, you know, I, I don't recommend that every farm does the specific thing that I'm talking about. I, I do feel like it's important that farm managers think about conflict proactively so that they're not just simply dealing with all of these problems in the middle of the busiest time of the year that they're meeting with um, the people that work on the farm and, and giving them feedback in some form. 
I'm thinking the other valuable part about straight talk is that the apprentices are getting feedback, not just from Don as the farmer and their boss, but getting feedback from each other, which is really helpful. Well, and oftentimes it's it's the same feedback, which when you hear, you know, if they're just hearing it from me, it's one thing. If they hear that they need to speed up the harvest on the lettuce from you know, three other people, then it, it, yeah, it does have other impact. This isn't the only structure that you have to your apprentice program. You guys do a weekly plan and, and farm tour, right? Yeah. So we do, um, let's see, we have a weekly plan. We're, we're constantly trying to give apprentices a macro view of what's happening on the farm. So I, I use the um, the idea of being lifted up above the farm and looking down at the farm and seeing all of these different systems that are moving around. And that's the kind of view that I'm hoping that the apprentices get. So every week they get a, um, a task list, which has divided into various areas, um, administrative animals, CSA, education, equipment, uh, greenhouse, vegetables, or volunteers. Um, and they'll have the different tasks that we are planning on doing that week. And I, I write that on a s- Sunday. I'll walk around the farm, write that up. And we talk about that on a Monday morning. Um, and then after we read over that, then we'll go on a tour of the farm, a, f- a fairly f- quick tour, a half hour tour. Um, I want them to see every part of the farm every week. Uh, it's very easy for us to get isolated in one corner on some big job. And um, through that farm tour, we can begin to develop these conversations about how everything is progressing. And if they have a big question about something, I might ask them to table it because in in an hour, we're going to be weeding together for the entire morning and then we can really delve into it. Um, so we do that every morning. I also have prepared a, a task list for the day. Um, it has everything prioritized. Every apprentice is required to have a, a, a writing um, utensil and a, a writing instrument and a, a notebook along with a, a watch and a, a leather person. And so they can write down in all the priorities for the day so that if I happen not to be around, they'll know what, what they can just move on to without having to find me. Um, you know, a, a big thing I'm, and I've heard this through feedback from apprentices is that my job in that morning meeting is to constantly frame what we're going to do, um, not just say today we're going to uh, weed the carrots. Um, I will mention this it's at this time of the year, the most important thing that we need to do this week is we need to get through the weeding of the carrots. We need to get through the um, pulling off the row covers on X and Y crop. And because we have volunteers coming this day and that day, um, because we have to harvest on Tuesdays and Fridays, that's why today we're going to really focus on getting through those carrots. And if we can get through those carrots, then we can have other options later on in the week. So kindly trying to frame it, then explaining what we're doing, um, and then gratitude every single morning at the start of every week when we go over the, um, the task list. I try to frame, explain, and then provide some gratitude. It's very, it's a, it's a very challenging apprenticeship, and so I want people to know how appreciative I am for what they're putting into this thing. Um, I've been through seasons when I haven't done that, and um, through feedback 
from apprentices, I realized just how incredibly important it is for their farm manager, for their mentor to let them know how much they appreciate their work. And, and it can be as simple as um, last, yesterday, I really appreciated how diligent everyone was when we transplanted those um, those melons. It's a pretty, it's a challenging job if we don't do it well. And I noticed everyone did great. So what other kinds of things are you, are you addressing with your apprentices when they're, when they're evaluating whether they want to be a part of your program? Well, we go through a whole list of some of these expectations that we have for them. I'm evaluating them as they have worked with me for a short amount of time. Um, I'm also thinking about our conversations that we had when I walked around the farm. So then after talking about all of these expectations, we sit around with Bridget and I say, um, from what you've seen and from what we've talked about, what are things that you are really excited about with this apprenticeship? And what are areas that you feel would be challenging for you? And then we kind of just carry that conversation around to see if there are any red lights or if there are any semi yellow lights that we feel people are going to have being with us. You know, like if someone says, you know, I have a hard time getting up in the morning, I'm not that prompt, but, you know, I, I'm really into this apprenticeship and I know I can make this thing work. You know, that for me is a red light that it's just, it's not going to happen. Um, it's just going to be frustrating for them constantly throughout the season. And it's going to be frustrating for us. If someone says um, one of the challenges that I might have is that um, it sounds really difficult to be the distribution manager for a week when I'm on that when I have that part of the rotation, um, I don't know what crops we would need to harvest or how much of them. I don't know how to manage CSA volunteers in the field or in the wash station. I don't know how to set up the distribution area or how to pack a, a cooler. Um, and so I, I would love to learn about it, but I'm really challenged by that. Um, and I view that as someone who's being extremely honest and earnest and I see that as an absolute green light because, I, again, I appreciate their honesty. And the first time we go through any of those rotations, it's, it's very difficult for everyone. And I'm, I'm holding their hand initially. And then based on um, their comfortability, I'm trying to back off, trying to support yet not micromanage and, you know, play around with that throughout the, uh, the time that they're learning the job. So, um, yeah, again, based on those conversations that we have um, around how they view our expectations that those give us an indication of how that fit would be for us. So Bridget, could you talk a little bit about your role on the farm? And you said earlier that you're not directly involved in the production and you're kind of on the, I don't want to say periphery, but that you're not, well, you're not the farmer. I am not the farmer. And I married into farming. My father grew up on a farm. I went to see my grandparents' farm when I was growing up and it was a dairy farm, which is a very different reality than what we have here. And the other part of this equation, we have Gabriella and Micah and we have been homeschooling them. And so that is something that keeps us incredibly busy and it's wonderful to do it on the farm because there are so many learning opportunities and opportunities for community and connection. What I really love about being on the farm with Gabriella and Micah is they have a chance to interact with people of all ages. And it is absolutely fantastic to see 
Gabriella having a discussion while picking flowers with an elderly farm member to see Micah showing uh, an, a family new to the farm where the herbs are located and just sharing what they know. I think a big part of my role is sort of that perspective on how to farm and have a life and self-care. And I know one of the things that has changed a lot is for both of us to really focus on taking good care of ourselves and even exercise. And it used to be that Don would just let in his 20s, he would sort of let the farm season build up his body and become strong that way. And I feel like there was a concerted shift in his uh, late 30s, early 40s about, wow, I have to really take care of my body and exercise and be strong in the winter so I can approach the season ready. One of the things that we did a few years ago is we did a green smoothie workshop that a farm member was really excited about presenting. And through that, we purchased a Vitamix. And so one of the things that I do each morning is make about two and a half quarts of green smoothie that throughout the day, it's something that Don and I are both drinking. And it's one of those, so many farmers are so busy working that they don't even have time to enjoy the produce that they're growing. And this is just another way to have a ready-made healthy snack available uh, for us. This past season was interesting in that Don kept getting injured. And um, what was really remarkable about it was seeing the ways in which both myself and Gabrielle and Micah could assist. And there was one point in particular, it was a harvest day and Don had hurt his back. So he was down in the house and it was a real chance for Gabriella and Micah in particular to step up in the way that they had been helping. And Micah is someone who could spend all hours out on the farm following the crew, working with the crew. And there are things that Micah knows about the farm that Gabriella and I have not yet learned. And so it was amazing to be out there with Gabriella and Micah getting assignments from the apprentices and just watching the competence with which a nine-year-old Micah and 12-year-old Gabriella went around helping out on the harvest and really getting that this was something important to do because Don was not available that day. So I think some of these things are, you know, when Don and I had our dream of we really wanted to incorporate our family into the farm, these were moments where that felt like, wow, this is what we were dreaming about and one of the reasons why we came to Caretaker Farm. I think it's really cool that that you found a role that works on the farm without without having to be the farmer. I mean, I think that's I for I know for a lot of farm couples there can be a, some tension around that. You know, who's in charge of what and who's making the decisions and who's getting the credit. Yes. And uh, I I don't know. Congratulations to both of you on getting that figured out. Well, I should say also for me. I don't feel called to farm in the way that Don clearly feels called to farm. I think if I did, I would have figured that out by now. And for me, before moving to Caretaker Farm, I was working as a domestic violence advocate in a hospital and talking to people all day about, um, you know, the importance of taking care of themselves and being independent. And so for me to set myself up as the junior farmer here with Don as my boss would not necessarily feel rewarding and would feel like a terrible betrayal of my real values. And um, I think for Don and I and who we are, I think we're both very structured people. And what is really important to us is to have a loving relationship. And I think some couples do it really well and work together. And I think we're very clear that sort of the 
the best expression of our relationship is not both of us out there trying to farm together. And while I love living on the farm, I have a lot of other passions and interests as far as the environment, as far as human rights. And those are things that anytime I can integrate into life in the farm, I certainly do. Um, but I'm just glad to live here and have access to amazing produce. And you need someone with the energy to prepare it and cook it and, uh, yeah, <laughs> bring it into our house. That's great. Are we going to get a recipe for the, the green smoothie? Oh, uh, well, the awesome part is you don't, I mean, we always put kale or spinach or some sort of green. We've got, we put chia seeds in it. Uh, we put whatever sort of fresh fruits we have. and um, Sometimes we put protein powder, depending upon how strong we need to feel or not. Um, so it's really about what you have. Um, but the basic thing is you sort of start with more fruits. And as you get more and more into it, it's more greens and less fruit. Um, so, But it's just great to have a ready snack that is healthy for that moment when you need something. All right. So with that, I'd like to turn to our lightning round uh, and, and ask you just a few quick questions about your farm and, and, and your world. Don, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Um, it might be viewed as a cop-out and I, I understand that, but I, I would say that the, my favorite tool is that thing, which allows me to do my work better. And, and that's my, the farm members and the volunteers that we have on our farm. Um, I mean, I could say some implement, but the reality is we're able to do what we do because of the help that these, um, folks bring every week. And so, uh, that is my favorite tool. And it's something we didn't talk a lot about uh, cultivating, and it's something we've addressed in some previous episodes. But um, do you have any any strong suggestions for? Um, it, I should say, do you have any any quick suggestions for for what to pay attention to and in, in cultivating that resource? Um. Well, uh, for me, it's more of a philosophy of. Um, that we're able to do what we do because of the help of all of these people rather than in spite of them. And so we have um, just tried to keep our systems very simple so that we can integrate people into them, whether it's our wash station setup or how we harvest or how we transplant, um, how we weed, how we hoe. Um, and so we just try to keep things very simple so that not only is it easy for these volunteers and, and the members to do them, but it's also easy for the apprentices and myself to manage them. Bridget, I know that you're not the farmer, but I'm, I'm kind of curious as the, as the farm facilitator, what's your favorite tool on the farm? I have to say that I really appreciate having a social work background, which is very ironic. We used to joke years ago that it would only be the farmer who would be excited to partner up with the social worker as far as me having greater economic uh, opportunities than the farmer. <laughs> um, but I'm coming to appreciate having worked as an advocate, having consulted with medical providers, having run support groups and having lots of opportunities to express expectations, to set clear boundaries, to discuss difficult situations with people. And I find that I often bring that experience to life on the farm, whether it's communicating with apprentices, whether it's checking in with a farm member, whether it's approaching someone who you've never seen before, whose little kid is trampling all over the recently planted parsley. Um, I really appreciate the 
experience of yeah, dealing with conflict and and celebrating. I mean, we, we keep talking about conflict. There's so many awesome moments here, but I appreciate having that um, the communication skills to enter into some challenging situations. A lot of people say, how do you guys do it? People are welcome to come to the farm any day, but Sunday. And I think that's one of the ways is that we are constantly talking about it. Um, my favorite tool as far as farm tool would have to be the middle buster shovel. And this has to do with several years ago, hearing my then four-year-old son talk about it. And I had absolutely no idea what he was talking about and turning to Gabriella and she's like, I don't know either. And just appreciating how much, um, yeah, my kids were learning around the farm. That's great. Thank you. And, and Don, what's your favorite crop to grow? Um, I love carrots. Uh, specifically, I love growing fall carrots. Um, the, the, the weeding of the fall carrots um, comes at a time of the year, you know, for us, that's late July, early August. And it's the time of the year when the, um, first of all, they're seeded on the, in that far field where our raspberries are. So it's, it's a pretty isolated field and the weeding comes at a time of the year when, um, you know, the apprentices are, are thinking about what they're going to do for the next year. And so there's all of these kinds of, um, life, decisions that they're in the midst of. And so it, it, we have just the most amazing conversations out there. And every year I look forward to, uh, to the weeding of, of those fall carrots, because we'll, we'll do that in the morning, in the afternoon, we'll have a volunteer group and then they kind of enter into that. And so I just have such fond memories of, uh, of those fall carrots. And if you guys could go back in time and, and tell your beginning farmer selves one thing, what would it be? I would say, um, take care of your body. You know, as Bridget mentioned earlier, when I was in my twenties, it, it just, um, I love the physical aspect of, of small scale sustainable agriculture. And I would just allow the, the season to, to get me in shape. And it's just, I cannot do that anymore. It just, uh, it just doesn't work that way. And so, um, I get pretty, um, um, crazy in the winter. And I, 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 I go through all these different, um, workout routines so that by the time the season started, I'm, I'm ready to go. And then usually every day during the season, I either work out in the morning during our lunch break, or I go for a bike ride, um, to get both clarity mentally, but also to physically stay in shape. And I, I will say from experience, that's I had no idea what was going to happen when I hit my late thirties on the farm and it, it changed everything about how I related to the physical work. You know, there's a book I read a couple of years ago called the slight edge by, uh, by Jeff Olson. And it's a, it's a pretty simple premise. Um, and I don't know if you've read it, Chris, but it, it just has to do with the every day we make these very little decisions that aren't that difficult to make one side or the other. And yet over time, um, there's just an exponential curve um, that either leads us to feeling better or feeling worse. And so, you know, as simple as, you know, d doing 20 pushups a day, after, to do that one day is nothing. Um, but after, you know, a month, that's 600 pushups, or after a year, that's many thousands of pushups that have affected your body. And, and looking at it both from a physical perspective or also, you know, saying something nice to an apprentice every single day, well, you know, one day it's just one thing, but over the course of a season that those kinds of things really add up. So, um, I think about that s simple idea often as I'm, 
getting up early in the morning and, and trying to work out before I start this very physically demanding job. I would have to say to our younger farmer selves that you don't have to do it all. And leading a balanced life is really important. And I think there are lots of things that we do really well. And there are other things that we just don't do. And we're okay with that. And I think it's been a process of, I'm thinking years ago, someone said, oh, do you guys tap the maple trees on your farm and make your own maple syrup in the winter? And I was like, no. And thinking how happy I am to support our neighbors who do that so well. And while they're doing that, we're out cross-country skiing with our kids. And so we're both on a farm and farming and loving life on the farm and also really trying to work hard to have a balanced life and have other things off the farm and developing other parts of ourselves in addition to who we are on the farm. Don and Bridget, thank you so much for, for making time in your lives for the Farmer to Farmer podcast. It's the winter solstice. We've got time. (laughs) (laughs) And and Chris, if I could just say that, um, you know, I mentioned our our weekly task lists and I always write a suggested reading um, for our apprentices for the week. And, you know, in listening to your podcast this past year, there've been a number of weeks in which I've referenced one of your podcasts because we're specifically discussing a, a subject that I feel you've, you've really, um, expressed in a, in a, in a really profound way through your podcast. So thanks. You know, I, I know you put a tremendous amount of work into this, um, but you have no idea the help that you've given to so many farmers. So, um, thanks so much for the work that you do. Thank you very much, Don. Yeah. And thank you for joining us today, Bridget. Thank you, Chris. I hope you guys have a great rest of the winter here. Thank okay. you so much. Take care, Chris. Bye-bye. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 47 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast and that you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Zasada. That's Z-A-S-A-D-A. I'm super excited to be heading to Kansas City on January 25th and 26th for a two-day short course on making your market farm work for you. I'm really big on this idea of management, the organization and coordination of resources and activities to achieve a defined outcome. But how do you do it? You plan, you monitor, and you control. If necessary, you make a new plan. And I want you to plan to get to this workshop where we're going to cover a cornucopia of ways that you can improve the outcomes all over your farm, from maintaining your values in the face of business pressure to responding effectively to unexpected changes in weather, staffing, and the marketplace. We'll dig into finances and employees, as well as the cool stuff like weed control, refrigeration, and irrigation. We'll probably even talk a little bit about love and beets. More details and registration information at cultivatekc.org. Also, we wrapped up the employment workshops that I've been talking about, but we've got another one on the schedule now in Grays Lake, Illinois on February 17th of this coming year. Employees make it possible to get more done, but managing workers in their work takes dedicated time, energy, and processes. And I'm going to share what I've learned in 25 years of farming and working with farmers about how to make that work for you. More information, including schedules and registration information at purplepitchfork.com slash betterboss. If you enjoy the podcast, I think that you would also enjoy my weekly email newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga. The Flying Rutabaga runs the gamut from practical templates for delegation to guidelines for watering transplants. You can sign up at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or at my other website, purplepitchfork.com. 
Also, if you enjoy the show, it would be great if you would pop on over to iTunes and leave us a review or make a comment on the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. These reviews and referrals are the bread and butter of making this show available to an ever wider group of listeners. And if you've been listening to the show, you know this already, but I'm going to say it again. I'd love to hear your suggestions for guests on the show. I know a lot of things, but I know that I don't know all of the great farmers out there. In fact, Don and Bridget were a recommendation from a listener to this show, folks that I had never heard of before, but somebody took the time to tell me how great they were, and it was clear that these guys were going to be a winner. So please visit FarmerToFarmerPodcast.com and use the contact form to tell me who you'd like to hear on future episodes of the Farmer to Farmer Podcast. And it looks like this is the last episode of 2015. So Happy New Year, everybody. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. 